It's Friday, November 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the past two days, CNN, the CBC, PBS, and others have repeated a horrifying statistic that originated from the nonprofit Save the Children. The claim, presented as a fact in bar charts on CNN and in countless other media throughout the world, is, and I'll quote the CBC version, more kids killed in Gaza in three weeks than all global conflict annually since 2019. CNN states it as more children killed in Gaza in one month than in any other conflict annually since 2019. Here is Dahlia Alakwati, head of humanitarian affairs for Save the Children Canada, who offers a slightly misstated version of the statistic that Save the Children originated. When we talk about over 3,400 children being killed in a period of three weeks, a number that is more than the annual number since 2019 of children killed in conflict zones across 20 countries, this is horrific. And here is a more precisely stated version of the supposed statistic as put forth by the anti-Zionist professor Norman Finkelstein, who we will get back to in the spiel. Uh, In the past three weeks, Israel has killed about 3,500 children in Gaza. That's more children have been killed in Gaza than all the war zones in the world combined. For the years 2020, 2021, and 2022. Shocking, but wrong. Totally wrong. In 2021, the United Nations Development Program gave a death count of 377,000, with 70% of those killed being children, for the war in Yemen. That would be over a quarter of a million dead children. Now, the problem with using that as a direct rebuttal to the statistics you heard Finkelstein and Save the Children put forth is that the Yemen numbers go back before the year 2019, and there was no methodical effort to break down the specific child death toll year by year. I would say it is impossible for 98% of all the child killing to have occurred in the first four years of fighting and not in the final four years, but I can't. 100% prove it because no one counted. But then there's Tigray. The Tigray region of Ethiopia saw a death toll, as reported in the Financial Times, of 600,000. I defer to the Ghent University study, which was much more methodical and found, quote, numerous war crimes were committed. And since July 2021, there has been a medieval siege on Tigray hindering all humanitarian assistance. Our calculations of the total number of civilian deaths in Tigray lead to the average estimate of 518,000 civilian victims. The lowest estimate we could realistically make was 311,000. The upper end was a scary 808,000. Again, with these stats, there is no breakdown of how many children versus how many adult victims. It should be noted that Organizations like the UN do not allow nonprofits to operate fully and freely within their country to accurately count the dead. This is why death counts have to be done by universities like Ghent. But it's also why there are, in actuality, 10 to 20 times more dead children from the Tigray conflict than from Gaza, but why no one can put the exact figure on it. However, it cannot be true that more children have died in Gaza. It just cannot be true. 
For it to be true, we would have to believe that less than 2% of the three or five or 800,000 dead people in Ethiopia, less than 2% were under the age of 18. And consider that 14% of the Tigray population is under the age of five. Again, impossible that fewer child victims were in Gaza. Tigray saw at least 10, probably closer to 20 times the number of dead children. The fact that the assertion of child casualties in Gaza gets spread around and cited in the face of sheer ignorance of the war in Tigray is outrageous and an embarrassment. Maybe it's racist, in, racist in the direction of not caring about sub-Saharan African deaths, maybe in the direction of not caring about gross misstatements about the scope of Israeli-caused deaths. I prefer to think of it as shamefully ignorant and not willful. It is absolutely an awful tragedy what's happening to the children and all innocents in Gaza. But to compare that to Tigray and say with a straight face that Gaza is worse should reflect nothing but shame on the person making the assertion and absolutely needs to be corrected by every news organization who was advancing this inaccuracy. On the show today, as I stated, we will analyze some of the other statements of Norman Finkelstein. I am not picking on a fringe actor in this debate, but someone central to it who routinely advances misinformation or disinformation. But first, Abby Smith Rumsey is the chair of the board of the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. That's a title. What does it mean? It means she's extremely well suited to talk about issues of how we form memory and why people deny facts right in front of their face and how political views can blind people. She is the author of what I thought to be a very interesting book, Memory Edited, Taking Liberties with History, and Abby Smith. Rumsey joins us next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Abby Smith Rumsey was on the National Science Foundation's Blue Ribbon Task Force. And let me tell you, if you're going to have a task force, blue, that's the shade of ribbon to pursue. There was a task force on sustainable digital preservation. She was senior writer and editor of the task force report on sustainable economics for a digital planet. And she served as program director at the Council of Library and Informational Resources. What this all means is that she's in a very good position to issue forth her new insights in a book called Memory Edited, Taking Liberties with History. She comes to the subject of what we know and how we know it, what we value and what we preserve from a fascinating place as a historian and someone with a real knowledge of neuroscience. And I was telling her before we started that her book, in many ways, blew me away. Abby Smith Rumsey, thank you for joining me on The Gist. It's good to be with you, Mike. Before we get into the thesis and the arguments laid out in the book, how do you come to those arguments? Give me a little bit of your background as something, I'm going to say more or a little different than pure historian or only historian. Well, when I was um, studying for my dissertation in medieval Russian history, I had the good fortune to be um, living in a year that um, the year that Brezhnev was alive, doing a doctoral dissertation research in the Soviet Union. And I wasn't allowed to see the archives that I wanted to. And I realized that that was how the Soviet Union treated the past as private information or not public. Um, but what really shocked me was when one of my roommates was um, shopping for food for us and came back from the market and said to me in, with great triumph that she had scored a kilo of butter. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, she said, so Abby, do you have butter in the United States? How hard is it to get? And I said, well, we always have it available because I, I didn't want to tell her that I had just read about the farmers in Wisconsin dumping tons of cheese because uh, they didn't like the farm bill. So she turned to me and said, no, seriously, um, you, you don't have to lie. I know you're a patriot, but you don't have to lie. And I said, I'm not lying. And she was indignant yeah. and yeah. said that, you know, I, I was lying. And I think I had just proved to her everything she had heard of, about capitalists. Did it cause a rift between you that <laughs> lasted a while? Uh, well, we didn't trust each other. I mean, I was filled with this frustration. And, um, but I also realized that we faced a bigger problem than just understanding the Kremlin. I had this flash that that when people control someone else's sense of reality, what's real in the world, they control not just the present, but also the future. Because she grew up in a world in which she couldn't imagine the kinds of things that we take for granted. So I realized that the key to totalitarian success in post-Stalin Russia was, or the Soviet Union, was the fact that they had they had a very um, different view of reality and that that very deeply affected the kinds of things they could imagine about their own future. So I decided that rather than be an historian studying the past, I wanted to ensure that we didn't have this problem in the United States. So I went to work for the Library of Congress, where the source of all this information 
is freely available for humans, for Americans, and for the world, actually. And so I took a slight turn as historian and became very interested in how access to information is controlled or not, and how people perceive what's available. And this like, happened at the time when digital information came along. It's very complicated. Yeah. And there's also a lot in your book that reveals a knowledge of neuroscience, so which would seem to dovetail with the role of an historian really easily, but I do not read as many uh, histories or contemplations of history that really get into how we form memories, how we form the basis of history. So why the focus on that? Uh, because no one else was focusing on it. I mean, it was strange to me that historians don't study memory and take advantage of what scientists have learned about memory. So we can, um, there's a way of polemicizing about the ways that various communities forget the past or they shape the past. And to me, as if this were somehow some kind of political nefarious behavior, but it is natural for all creatures, not just human beings, to learn the world, you know, we form this kind of model of the world in our brain so that we don't have to think about it every day. And the things that we know um, or think we know, it's what we expect to see. Like this woman not understanding about butter in the United States. She couldn't even imagine it. So I realized in studying neuroscience that scientists were helping us think about how we thought about the past, but also the future, that we look for the things that are different. And if they don't fit in with our world model of what we know, we tend to discount it sometimes or right. are incredulous. So we use the past as the basis for our conjecture about the future. That is, as a species, why the past is important to us. And I think that there's some evidence that chimps can convey to the next generation certain advantages, how to use certain tools in a very limited way. But that is the only, the big advantage that humans have, Yuval Harari will talk about telling stories, but I think that fits within the idea of one generation or within the individual can gain knowledge, keep holding that knowledge and then pass that knowledge along for improvement. But the question is, what is that knowledge that is held? That is pretty much the basis for everything, isn't it? Yeah, that's very true. And one of the things that's, that's true about today is that the amount of information and learning, the sort of modification of what we know by these discoveries, like how big the universe is, well, we don't know. Is the universe expanding or not? We don't know. And all these things that we are learning about ourselves through, say, neuroscience um, is modifying our understanding of who we are as human beings. And I think that, frankly, it's rather confusing for people. Um, it's certainly confusing for me how quickly we have learned about the world and changed everything I thought I knew as a kid. Yeah. Um, and even an early adult about what a human being is capable of. Everything, I mean, what are the fundamentals? What hasn't changed? Uh, the fundamentals are, we, I think we grew up in a country that's founded on the idea by the founders, you know, who grew up in the enlightenment, that humans are in their own way, infinitely perfectible. And that reason is the key to getting ahead in the world. That in fact, if we were educated, and used reason, would we would be able to solve all the problems that we face. So we have a kind of scientific or even a technological bias towards our understanding of progress. In the meantime, um, in the past 30 years, both psychologists and scientists have discovered that reason is something 
that the brain imposes on the world that we take in in order to make an order. Out right, of it. right. I mean, mapping, uh, m- mapping patterns onto this randomness. Yeah. Right, and even that our our deepest convictions are somehow coming through the emotional parts of our brain, not through reason. And there are, are cognitive scientists who prove that reason is something that we impose on a decision and think that it's rational, but it's actually a sort of ad hoc justification. So would you say that what we call reason should be jettisoned, thrown out? I mean, this there are people who say this, totally postmodern and it's it's all just based on perception, right? And how do you even uh, conduct a society on that basis? On the contrary, I think it's a, well, I always think it's a both and, not an either or. But I, I think that rather than addressing some of the issues that we uh, that we think are polarizing us, that rather than trying to use reason to convince the other side of what are what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not true, we mistake the idea. We mistake the fundamental problem that when say the left looks at the right and says, "Well, let's just explain the facts to them. Yeah. We will convince them." They um, about climate change or something. They underestimate the way that people's ideas about the world and about climate change have have to do with some, I mean, in this case, in fact, tribal affiliations and kind of sense of loyalty to a world that is has has left them behind. I mean, ideas that, that they cling to. So with they, I mean, I spent some time with the book talking about conspiracy theories and the irrationality of some of these things, but reason is not going to convince people that their ideas are irrational because their ideas are not formed by reason. But what you're putting your finger on is the tactic is not correct, but undergirding all of that is, if only it were. I mean, that that is what the your what you just said to me would indicate. But what the book talks about and what psychiatrists and researchers have found out is that's not really the case. It's not just that reason is not necessarily convincing when other things are at play. It's more like it's not really reason. It's not really what we think of as formula, uh, scientific method, A plus B equals C. Right. So one of the things that's notable about the current situation is that it's confusing to people who believe in science, that the people who are denying climate change, for example, and here I'm just taking the liberty of making gross and unfair generalizations. Yeah. Um, so, for example, they they feel that vaccines may be a conspiracy to control them or something like this. So they're we we tag them as anti-scientific, but of course they take. I mean, they they go they believe in medicine. It isn't as if they really don't believe that medicine is going to cure them. So they pick and choose the things that. Um, I mean, they're not really science deniers. They um, and they're no longer necessarily denying that there was such a thing as global warming. Mm-hmm. They want to deny that it's something that the experts say it is that it's caused by humans, and for a number of complex reasons. But the resistance to this is not just that it's inconvenient to their to their life and may put them out of work if they're in a you know fossil fuel industry. It's that the nature of the change is too upsetting to them. And the amount of, I don't know, somehow looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves for who we really are, it's very, as the Russians say, don't blame the mirror if your face is ugly. It's just 
it's very difficult sometimes to just face up to what our true responsibilities are. I could see a Russian say, saying that. I could see Stalin saying that w- with what his facial scars and so forth. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I, I think that the, although we're freedom-loving people, we have a very hard time accepting the responsibility of freedom. Which is what? So we have a very hard time making the kinds of choices that we know we should because of the responsibility of living up to them. And that's not, uh, it's perfectly understandable. We live in a very difficult time in which we have to make a lot of difficult choices and make sacrifices for a better future for our children, if not ourselves. And that's simply against human nature in many ways. Uh, other than, say, climate denial, can you think of an example where the political valence cuts the other way, where this, this phenomenon can be shown? Well, I think that, you know, I, one of the things that I that I say in the book, which may be controversial, is that these two sacred values that we hold as Americans, which are equality and freedom, are fundamentally incompatible. That is, we have to have a balance between them. My total freedom can't really impinge upon your freedom, but it seems that that's where we're caught because some people say that my my beliefs have to be shared by everybody for the for us to get along. I also believe that in strict sense, there is no such thing as real equality among people. People are born with many different physical abilities and disabilities. Um, we're, we don't get to choose what gender we are, what skin color we have, where we're born. So there are these fundamental um, inequalities. And uh, so it's not as if we can actually fix them, or I should say, in order to fix them, we would have to do some horrifying scientific interventions in, in human destiny and human genetics. Um, so, I mean, some societies that believe in eugenics want to solve you know, the problem of inequality by simply um, either engineering everybody to be the same or, um, or simply getting rid of people who are not good enough to be in this, to share this world. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's a difficult thing that we just have to, we have to keep struggling with. We do have a lot of incompatible virtues when you really dig down. And I think uh, Americans want to see themselves as a virtuous people. Maybe we all do. It's just that we define them differently. But I was reading a lot about and been interested in the tension between progress and pluralism. I'm a huge believer in pluralism, and I know you are too. But these researchers talk about how progressivism or what uh, I guess is defined as progress now, will be in opposition to the idea of, we can well, we can all have our beliefs and we have to respect other people's opportunity to pursue those beliefs. Um, if you believe in progress, part of that is to say, we have to change those beliefs. And the pursuit of those beliefs, if it comes through being uh, enshrined in law, is can't be allowed. So there's another example of virtues in opposition to each other, I think. Well, that's true. And I want to challenge the idea of progress to begin with. So um, although I have been mentioning people who have conservative views, I want to say that people who have progressive views also have this blindness to the certain uh, a certain um, quality of human nature, which makes us less perfectible than they like to think. So one of the things that was a great triumph for people um, with progressive views and who believe in pluralism was the election of um, Barack Obama to the presidency. And um, let it be noted that, of course, Barack Obama, Obama is not the descendant of enslaved peoples. Um, 
So he's not an African American in that sense, like his wife. So that's a, that's though his though his uh, yeah. daughters. So are. that's yes, exactly. So that's yeah. one distinction. But the other is this understanding that even Republicans or people who are not necessarily progressive um, felt a great sense of pride that they had voted for this man, um, and then. They thought, well, many people believe that we would never go back. We had reached this point and we could never go back. That is, things will always be fine now. And they were shocked, appalled, and simply disbelieving that when um, Donald Trump was elected, it was somehow this was going backwards, Mike. Well, I don't believe that we go backwards. We always go forwards in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they were, un- they were, they believed that somehow once we pass, that there's this kind of infinite progress. And it can't be reversed, and they can actually ignore the people who are um, who don't agree with them. And so it was shocking to me. Um, I mean, it was a surprise. Unfortunately, it wasn't a shock when um, Trump won, but it was um, it was disappointing to me. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was to sort of argue that um, we shouldn't believe in our own innocence as Americans. We always want to believe that we're the best and that we show the way in the, in the world and that we will always be the shining example um, of, of what a democracy is. And we've been disabused, obviously, um, of that view by now. But the idea that we could only go forward with racial progress or pluralism is simply not true. You, but wait, you say that we, don't, we do always go forward. Yes, right. But I mean, we do, that is, it's not the... the the understanding that we're regressing yeah. isn't true. We're actually not regressing. We're actually going forward to the next stage of the struggle. So we have actually elected an African or a, a black man. Yes. Um, but we have also seen the rise of reaction to that. And I'd say that that's an, another and a new phase of an ongoing American struggle. I mean, I will say that. I mean, of course, people don't remember this, but um, when the Irish Americans came, they were like the equivalent of um, the immigrants now that we excoriate, that we say that we shouldn't be let in. I mean, there was a huge amount of reaction against Irish Americans. And I am old enough to remember and come from a Catholic family when um, Jack Kennedy was running for election. And there were a huge number of people who feared that he was actually loyal to the Pope. Mm-hmm. That it was actually a conspiracy. Yeah, he had to give that speech in Houston where he, you know, announced his loyalty not to Rome but to the United States. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just a recurring pattern in the United States. I think it is normal um, for there to be some lurch forward and then some like, whoa, what happened? And it feels like a lurch backwards, but I think it's just more forward motion. It's more confronting once again these tensions between um, wanting true freedom and then true equality and and pluralism. I mean, I ask in the book whether we really need to have a shared past to have a shared future. And I contend that that's not true because it's too easy to make up a past that accords with whatever we want, this innocence. What we need is a shared sense of reality. Abby Smith-Rumsey chairs the board of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. She is the author, most recently, of Memory Edited, Taking Liberties with History. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mark. 
And now the spiel. I'll start the spiel with a critique that I got on the GIST Reddit page. This was after my spiel of a couple days ago when I talked about how the lack of beheaded babies or documentation of beheaded babies was interpreted by big critics of Israel as a very telling piece of manipulation. BK61206 writes, once again, yet another episode where Mike gives the Israeli side of the war every benefit of the doubt, something he never does for supporting the Palestinians. Look, I'm not here to give the benefit of the doubt to any side. That is the wrong framing. I am here to be fair. That said, how bias works in a news organization, one as sprawling as the BBC or the New York Times, or one as, let's say, concentrated as Peachfish Productions, it's not always that the words or the angles or the emphasis is biased. It's usually about story selection. So with that in mind, I have to say, I do rebut a lot of inaccuracies that are anti-Israel, and maybe I don't do enough with inaccuracies that are anti-Hamas, but if there are any glaring ones, I would, I will. I have reported on how much to trust the numbers generated from the Hamas-run Ministry of Health. That's what the de facto way of describing it is. And if you heard that report, I said that we shouldn't trust anything blindly. And the Ministry of Health certainly got a lot wrong about the death toll with the Al-Akhli hospital explosion. But I did say that the track record of the Hamas-run Ministry of Health has been a bit inflated, but compared to UN or Israeli numbers, not wildly inflated. I have also talked about speech rights in the U.S., saying that pro-Palestinian protesters should not be punished for being pro-Palestinian. I've also rebutted exaggerated claims around safety that supporters of Israel make. Sometimes they're right, which I documented when we're talking about death threats or actual physical violence. And I do understand the appeal of worrying about safetyism when confronted with offensive ideas, it's understandable, it's maybe tactically wise, but I think it's bad. I think it's bad to default and make arguments about safety when safety isn't at stake. Hey, you want another one? If I were in the House of Representatives, I would not have censured Rashida Tlaib. I thought about this long and hard. I do think the thing that Rashida Tlaib and many pro-Palestinian protesters cited, the phrase, from the river to the sea, that to me is horribly offensive, especially by the standard of, oh, it's not the intent of the statement, it's the impact on the listener, which is an ideal that Rashida Tlaib has endorsed when it's about other topics. But I reject the standard of intent doesn't matter. Hey, Tlaib knows what she is saying. She is lying when she tries to mischaracterize the river to the sea as an aspirational statement. But that is a slogan that people say. And yeah, it's an extremely reasonable inference that when you hear that sentiment, you say, oh, they're calling for wiping out Israel. But it is an inference. Censuring public officials is really a bad thing between 1980 and 2010. Most of my life, in fact, we went almost entirely without censure votes in the House of Representatives. There was one censure. It was two representatives who had sex with underage congressional pages. That wasn't a difficult vote. But in the last few years, time spent censuring Rashida Tlaib and Adam Schiff and Lauren Boebert, which failed, and the like, it's gone too far. Many horrible things have been said by members of the House of Representatives, but many more horrible things who haven't been censured say things all the time. But there are plenty of things that plenty of officials, right there on their websites, right there part of their party platforms, that are horrible and terrible. It's somewhat of a free speech issue, not technically, 
I read the argument of Brad Schneider of Illinois, who's the Democrat is probably most critical of the 22 Democrats who signed the censure resolution. I would not. I'm more a defender of the ethic of free speech, of disagreement, of pluralistic impulse to use the means of debate to rebut terrible ideas and slogans rather than official censure. Anyway, that is giving no one the benefit of the doubt. I actually doubt that Rashida Tlaib's protestations of innocence on the meaning of the sentiment of what she said is anything other than, you know, lies. And this brings me to Norman Finkelstein. I don't give any benefit of the doubt to Norman Finkelstein. Now, Norman Finkelstein is an extremely influential academic with upwards of a quarter of a million Twitter followers. His book, Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom, is now Amazon's number one bestseller in Middle Eastern history. I lay out his credentials only because my largest disinclination in even talking about what he says and doing this segment was asking myself, am I elevating terrible threadbare arguments just to crush them for sport? But this isn't sport. This is a widely listened to expert, so-called expert, who lays out the case why the October 7th attacks were understandable. So here's Finkelstein on my friend Noam Dwarman's podcast, Live from the Table. My initial reaction was people broke free of a concentration camp and open air prison, whichever term you prefer. Uh, and of course, I was very sympathetic. As more information came in, Finkelstein says he recalibrated his reaction. He compared the atrocity of October 7th to a slave rebellion or an uprising in a concentration camp, victims killing their captors. And he eventually dropped the idea of concentration camp as an analogy and used the exact term, a concentration camp, to describe the inhabitants of Gaza. Knowing as I do, after having studied the situation for two decades, Knowing as I do the situation in Gaza, I couldn't find it in me to condemn the actions of those concentration camp victims. I think a lot of people, a lot of good, kind-hearted people who aren't well-informed about the realities of life in Gaza think they are well-informed because they listen to very popular experts like Norman Finkelstein, and they believe it. They believe that's the situation. When you press people to such a disgusting degree like a concentration camp or slave quarters in 1860, this is what you get. So here is Finkelstein describing just how torturous daily existence is in Gaza. Half the population in Gaza is classified by international humanitarian organizations as suffering from, quote, extreme food insecurity. That's Gaza. Hamas, the, the people who burst through the gates of Gaza, uh, they were over, overwhelmingly about 20, 21, 22 years old. That means they were born into the concentration camp half of whom have never seen a full meal in their lives. What is the surprise? I want everyone to do this. I want everyone to go to Google Map, the Gaza setting for Google Map, and put in supermarket or grocery store. And then search. Just look. All of these grocery stores have videos and pictures and they're not as nice as Whole Foods. Some of them are just convenience stores, but plenty of them are indistinguishable from the key foods down the block from where I live. This isn't to say that Gaza is free or beautiful or bountiful in every way, but as a justification for slaughter, the total privation of the young men of Gaza, it is just not true. All of these men could and have found a meal. Gaza is not great, 
But the stunting of children in Gaza, which occurs 7.1% of the time, 7.1% of children in Gaza are so underweight as to be considered stunted. That's bad, but it's also very low, according to UNESCO. The world average in stunted children is 21.9%. Also, obesity is a problem in Gaza and the West Bank. 38% of women and 26% of men in Gaza and the West Bank are obese, according to UNESCO. Food insecurity, that seems very scary. You heard that phrase, not a good thing. But the definition of food insecurity is a household is classified as severely food insecure if defined by the World Bank as, quote, when at least one adult in the household has at any times during the year to reduce quantity of food to have skipped meals. All right. The number of food insecure people in 2022 is 1.3 billion people worldwide. 1.3 billion people do not live in concentration camps, are not justified in carrying out terrorist attacks. Then there is the issue of density, which Finkelstein cites. 25 miles long, five miles wide. It's a tiny parcel of land. And cites. Which means among the most densely populated places on God's earth, they want to take half the population, namely what's called the northern sector, and push them into the south. So now among the most densely populated places on God's earth is going to be doubly, doubly densely populated. Knowing what I know, it was flummoxing to hear a man sitting during an interview in a place that is twice as densely populated as Gaza. He was sitting in Manhattan at the time. I was listening in Brooklyn at the time, which is more densely populated than Gaza. Sometimes you'll see, and this was the case in the Washington Post, that they say, quote, the Gaza Strip has almost exactly the same land area as Las Vegas, but three times the population, okay? Its largest city, it shifts a little, Gaza City, is more tightly packed than New York City, okay? But if you're going to take out the parts of Gaza that exclude Gaza City, let's take out just one borough of New York City. Let's take out Staten Island. And then you will find that the rest of New York City other than Staten Island is just as densely packed as Gaza City. Finkelstein went on to defend prior statements describing the rockets that are emanating from Gaza and Lebanon as perhaps only fireworks. I leave that part to you to determine if you're into that explanation. I don't know if among the most esteemed, informed critics of Israel scoff at Finkelstein's exaggerations. I will say that, well, true academics probably don't believe it, but it really doesn't matter. He's number one on Amazon in Middle Eastern history. He has endless invites to do all sorts of media to discuss the justifications of the horrors of Gaza, how it's like a concentration camp. And he's a son of concentration camp survivors. If you want to decide that Hamas has to be dismantled because of what it did on October 7th, I say, fine. But then the Israeli government has to also be dismantled because for 20 years, it's kept a whole population confined in a concentration camp. I don't understand it. In a sense, I could be accused of picking on a fringy alarmist, person who's inaccurate, and positing that this can't possibly be the best arguments out there. It just can't be. But it is the case that this drivel is representative of some of the most widespread arguments out there. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The 
Senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dupro, and thanks for listening.